Today, you will hear the views and ideas of our podcast guests. We're eager to showcase their expertise and provide a platform for their views, but they may not always reflect or align with the views of the positive effect or the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions. Welcome to Podcast. We are created by and for people living with HIV. On each episode, we explore what it means to be Pause. We challenge the status quo, and we share stories that matter to us. I'm James Watson, and I'm HIV positive. If you're living with HIV, listen up. Uh, I'm a fairly opinionated guy, so I, I did a lot of sort of first-person <laughs> editorializing, and um, I kind of made a name for myself as an alternate voice. I didn't always agree with um, others in the field. We have a great show for you. This is Podcast. I am very excited about my guest today. He embodies the tireless and courageous spirit of HIV activism in this country. He has never been afraid to speak out. With 75 years under his belt, Bob Leahy has a unique perspective on living with HIV and has been instrumental in shaping the movement and the sector. Born in the UK, Bob emigrated to Canada in 1971 and was diagnosed with HIV in 1993. He left his banking career, went on disability, and his volunteer work in the HIV sector began in earnest. Like many high-functioning volunteers, he was in demand and became involved in the workings and governance of numerous aid service organizations. In addition to all of that, for nine years, he was also the publisher and editor of PositiveLight.com, a peer-run online Canadian magazine, one of my favorites. Bob is a vocal advocate for older adults living with HIV and has had a direct and transformative impact as the leading Canadian U equals U advocate in Canada. He's won a number of awards, including the Casey House Award, the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal, and has been inducted into the Ontario AIDS Network Honor Roll. He has been an instigator and a troublemaker and an inspiration to many. We have a lot to talk about, Bob. Welcome to Podcast. Thank you, James. I love that introduction, particularly the troublemaker. We can talk about that later, but thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So you, you describe yourself now as a largely retired activist. So which part of you is retired? Um, that's a good question, James. Retirement is never, you've never done it before. So I never quite knew whether to fade quietly into the background or make an abrupt stop. And, and, and I decided to do an amalgam of those two things. So right now, yeah, I'm slowly fading into the woodwork, although I'm still involved <laughs> with, with some work. And I'm going to the International AIDS Conference next month and um, speaking to you. So I'm kind of still got my foot in the water a little bit. Right, right. Was it a difficult decision to step back? Well, at a certain age, you start thinking about what you want to do with the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> right. In my case, it was really quite late. I, I was really very, very involved till about the age of oh, early 70s anyway. Pretty well 24-7 when I was with Positive Light. That was a very heavy 
um, assignment, that particular one. So yeah, I really, I really, a lot of work. Yeah, I had to back down from that a little bit, uh, but I still kept involved with some committee work, etc., and started to pick. Here's a sort of life lesson, James: do the work you enjoy and scrap the rest if you possibly can, because that's kind of what <laughs> right. I did. Yeah, it's nice to be able to pick what and choose what you can do. And so that's the space that I'm in right now. And, and it gives me a chance to garden, to pet the dogs, to do things which are equally as important, I think, for a person. Yeah. Um, as well, as um, trying to change the course of HIV. Right. Uh, well, that's, you know, that sounds lovely, petting the dogs, that part. So I just want to take go back a bit because I'm always interested in how activists got their start. So in 1993, like when you acquired HIV, and from what I understand, like shortly thereafter, you were out about your status and started volunteering. So what led you to that decision to step out front? Um, I took the position very quickly in my um, HIV career that I wanted to be out. Um, I, I made that decision that I wasn't going to hide under a under a corner, I, I needed to let my friends know, let my neighbors know that I was HIV. So I did that. So that, I think that was an important first step, you know, mm. um, stat tackling stigma head on. Right. But then I, I'd made some moves that were accidental at the time, but really worked out. For instance, I started with the AIDS Committee of Toronto as a front desk volunteer. The very first volunteer thing I ever did with, with the HIV movement. And it was a really good start because I, um, you know, ACT was a good place to work. And the front desk, you know, you got to know everybody yeah. and I got to read a lot. So my advocacy career kind of ramped up pretty qu quickly. Um, it was a natural step for them to be involved in boards. I was, right. I was on the board of uh, PAN. I became their ED. Uh, PAN is the... That's the Peterborough AIDS Resource AIDS Network. Network right? Yeah, so I was the, uh, the chair of that. And then I was on the board of the OHTN, uh, and I was on the board of CAS. And those two assignments, if you like, taught me a lot. Right. But at the same time, I sort of used my interest in blogging to start writing and eventually publishing. Uh, and that was a huge opportunity for me yeah. to give other people a voice, but also to, to uh, I'm a fairly opinionated guy, so I, I did a lot of sort of first-person <laughs> editorializing, and um, I kind of made a name for myself as an alternate voice. I didn't always agree with right. um, others in the field, so... Right. So back in the day, I mean, I'm just thinking about now and back then. So what were the main issues that you focused on back when you first started volunteering? My first, um, I, I guess, big passion, and it really carried right through my career, was was around treatment. Now, I'm not a treatment expert, but I was on the first clinical trial of the first protease inhibitor. So I knew right from the start, I had, had experience with treatment and seeing how it worked. That sort of segued into, in the um, start of the 2000s, into an interest in treatments prevention. Initially, I was right. a bit cautious because a lot of people were saying treatments prevention is it's trying to medicalize the the condition you know we're, try, we're trying to pump people in pump with medication so they don't transmit hiv so there was that side to it we had to 
deal right. with, and I think we did. So I, I became an, an advocate for treatment prevention when certainly not many in Ontario were. We were hearing strong voices from BC, uh, in particular Dr. Montana, Julio Montana, mm-hmm. um, who I, I actually I developed a kind of close relationship with with because I was sort of starting to really see the benefit of treatment prevention and getting over my initial uh, concerns. Right. Yeah, I remember reading an article where you sort of did a turnaround. That's right. You changed yeah, your yeah, mind, that's what was right? it called now? Let me think. Um, how I changed my mind on, each, on, on treatment prevention. That got picked up and translated into German and Dutch and God knows what. Wow. But the interesting <laughs> thing that Montana read it and liked it so he, he invited me to Vancouver uh, for a couple of conferences um, and I interviewed him many times so I was sort of an ally of him in the social media field uh, which of course right. put me in the bad books of many in Ontario because at that time we were saying bad things about treatment prevention we weren't liking it the AIDS Bureau wasn't liking it's it. It's true right? Yes. Yeah yeah yes. it was a hard role. Yeah and um, then when the, the no. Swiss statement came out in 2008 uh, suggesting that people with um, treatment don't uh, transmit the virus. Um, there was a huge backlash to that. A number of organizations produced position papers saying, wait a minute, you know, this is not definitive. Uh, you should still be using condoms, all those kind of issues. So right. that was when things really became interesting uh, because I was not buying this. I was among the people saying, no, there's, there's some science here you have to listen to. And, and re- with real world experience, people were starting to have sex with, with partners um, where one partner was on treatment. The other was negative and not, there was no transmission happening. So there's a right. body. Their, of- their big fear was like they were, they were wanted to like, not hide, but delay that public health message. Right. And they, uh, from my understanding, they didn't want people to stop using condoms right. because they were still thinking that there was some risk. Right. Is that correct? Right. And they had this yeah. uh, in, in, what's the word, ingrained opposition to barebacking or anything that would sort of encourage barebacking. And that, that mindset carried over pretty well right through uh, until... U equals U came along, or the partner study came along, which was a study that, a large scale study that um, pretty well proved that if you're taking antiretroviral treatment and you're undetectable, you're not going to transmit the virus. So that information right. sort of hit, hit us in 2016. It wasn't embraced originally, not by any means. Um, so that's no. when I think probably my biggest battles began because I got involved with Bruce Richmond, who's the founder really of U equals U in, in the summer of 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, we became close too. And that started a huge push to get some of the influential bodies to, to accept U equals U. And we did uh, right up to to the government of Canada accepting U equals U, signing on in in uh, World AIDS Day 2018. But that was very, very challenging. And, and it was also a lesson in community activism, because all this was not led by the large organizations. They were absent from all mm-hmm. this. It was people like John McCullough and Darian Taylor and some really good people who sort of banded together and, and strategized about how to get organizations on board. And we did it. You know, I have a career of um, 
I think, uh, almost 30 years in activism. And, and that has to be the sort of thing I'm most proud of. Not, not the... Well, it's a remarkable, remarkable achievement, really. It was. No. It was something to yeah. be proud of. And those things don't happen very often. So one day they'll make a film of it because I, I missed out all the sort of backroom plotting and... You know, some of the characters I'm not going to name, uh, but it was it, it's a really good story. And, and, and it was right. even played out on the world stage. And, and we, we took the message to um, Paris, the International AIDS Conference in 2017 and stormed the stage. I, I love doing that. Right. Uh, you don't get a chance to do that very often, right? And, and then in 2018 in Amsterdam... Again, the International AIDS Conference, huge demonstration there, uh, but more a, a celebration, if you like, the, of the progress that the community had, had made. Yeah. So, that's, yeah, that's I'm very proud of that. You should be. Yeah, absolutely. This sector, you know, can sometimes eat its own. And if I recall, like there was a lot of pushback, as you've been mentioning it, but a lot of pushback against you personally. And I, I wonder, how did you manage when things got personal? I fumed. <laughs> that's, that's all I can tell you. I, I, I was shut yeah. out of conferences sometimes. I had to wait outside while there was sensitive material that they didn't want the media to hear. And yeah, I, that really bugged me. I'm not going to say I came to terms with that, and I'm not going to name names who shut me out. But yeah, I'm a sort of passionate right, person. Right. So I, I don't get angry, but I do get um, down when things are not going well and yeah we had some we had some very challenging times but we we somehow it's about resilience i guess you know we talk a lot about resilience and that was a chance for for some of us to practice resilience and keep going right right now you've recently had surgery yes major heart surgery yes. and yes. you've written about it of course which is <laughs> which is it's a great article <laughs> so i encourage anybody to read it yeah. in pause magazine so i just wanted to touch on that how do you think that's changed you well that's interesting question too um it certainly caused me to reflect a lot and reflect a lot on how one copes through because heart illness or heart conditions they they affect a lot of us as we get older. So, you know, it's more a reflection on aging and how you deal with a body that is not working as well as it used to. And in my case, actually, it prompted some interesting changes because I, after, after that surgery, you're encouraged to sort of change your life a little bit. I went through cardiac rehab uh, therapy, talking about eating better and exercising all those things. So there was a radical change in my lifestyle then. Right. I also have diabetes and neuropathy and just being old, some of the things that happen to you. So you, it, it also changes the place of HIV in your life. And I, I have to confess that with, with those kind of things happening, with, with heart conditions and recovering from surgery, HIV seems easier to manage compared to some of those things. I mean, diabetes, HIV is often compared to, to diabetes, but in actual fact, diabetes is much more of a challenge to deal with, to cope with, to manage than HIV. Right. And of course, heart conditions can require very invasive procedures. I mean, you know, you know what happens when they do open heart surgery, it's, it's big time. Uh, and it leaves yeah. you, you weakened, uh, like I've never been weakened before. 
so time of wow. reassessment, James, but actually for the good. Mm -hmm. I think all those things, I'm probably a little bit healthier than I ever was, well, more conscious of what I eat, more conscious that I should be exercising more, and I, I do. So yeah, time for reassessment, I think is what that was okay. all about. Now you wrote in that article that HIV hasn't changed enough since it was a majorly life-threatening condition. Instead, we face the growing danger of HIV being overblown in relation to other diseases. Could you ex expand on that and what your your feelings around that? Yeah, that's for overblown was probably not a, not a good choice of words because um, I still think it's a major health concern from a public health perspective and from an individual perspective, and the fact that it doesn't strike or doesn't uh, not all communities affected equally is worrying. So I can really only speak as a privileged white man, and my my experience of HIV is very different, maybe. Um, but as right. I said, James, we do have to acknowledge that HIV is much more manageable now. So what is the impact of that on the services we provide, on how stigma still stands up, on criminalization, all those things? So, yeah, I, I do tend to underplay HIV, I must admit, in my own life. And I stress right. it in my own life, and that's all I can do. With other people still, obviously, they, they, they're struggling, and uh, and people are, right. people are still dying. Uh, but in my own life, and and I and I think I like to think that we value, uh, you know, personal experience. So each everybody's personal experience is, is valuable. You don't discount people because they're privileged or because they're not privileged. So each story is important to listen to. I, I think, and that's right. why I kind of kind of um, talk about this. Yeah. Okay. So I've recently, you live in a rural environment. Mm -hmm. I've recently moved to a rural environment. Uh, I grew up in a rural environment. But coming back to the rural environment, <laughs> living with HIV has opened a whole nest of issues, like, you know, for me around stigma and sort of, ref I thought it had all these things beat, you know, and then I come here and I'm like, oh, I need to find a dentist. I need to, um, when I go to the chiropractor, do I disclose that I'm HIV positive? What about getting my blood done here? How confidential is this small town? Like, I, I don't know. Do you have that? Did you go through any similar thing there? I thought I would, James, when I moved up here. That was in 1996. And somebody told me, uh, the, I met a gay guy here. He knocked on our door and said, hi, I'm gay. You know, um, one of the things he said was don't tell people your HIV because um, I was going to write about it. You know, I was blogging at the time and my blog was, uh, this is before even HIV, I used to blog every day. And um, yeah, so I was going to write about it. I'm a new guy in town, I'm HIV positive. He said, don't do that. He said, they'll burn your house down. So I'm oh thinking, God. I'm not seeing many burn houses around here and therefore okay guys here so i completely disregarded that advice but there is that stereotype yeah that your rural neighbors are not going to like you very much if they know you're hiv so don't talk about it now my experience has been quite different hmm. my experience of, of rural people rural neighbors is that in in my community at least i live in a funny little community called walkworth and it's known for being a little bit gay. It is, yeah. one. I think the Globe and Mail called it the gayest little village in Ontario. <laughs> I don't know whether you can 
hear any of this and say it applies anywhere else. But I will just tell you that, no, I never had a problem. Uh, and it's partly me. I mean, if you come out strong and let the chips lie, is that the right word? Mm-hmm. Let the chips fall, something like that. Fall um, where they may, yeah. Something like that. That The consequences are often better than you think. A lot of what we worry about is often, you know, our own insecurities coming out rather than necessarily a reflection of the environment you're in. So, James, give it a go. You know, I think you'll find that yeah. you, you know what rural people like. They're basically good, often God-fearing guys or women, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be nasty to you. No. I was going to say, we recently had an election, so I sort of judge my neighbors (laughs) by their political signs. Well, that's true. I mean, they can be they can be staunch blue, but still be nice to you. I know when when I... um, when I came out of at my hospital, there was a period when I didn't have a place to exercise because the mall was shut down, the exercise place was shut down. And the local church, it was United Church, offered to uh, let me walk around the sanctuary in circles, which I did for a bit, actually. But that's an right. example where, you know, religion, although it may not be our cup of tea or it may, they may not represent our values, it nevertheless is about being good to people sometimes, being kind to people. And that's what I've been fortunate to experience. Again, not necessarily typical. Not, it's just my world. I'm just talking about my world. Right. Uh, which is but sage advice bit, nonetheless. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. So I wanted to just continue on with the aging discussion. You're still engaged in activism around elderly folk um, who are aging with HIV. And I'm, in what ways are you engaged in that activism? Yeah, well, I've I've been sort of concerned with that file or that topic for some time because um, what I was noticing was that HIV and aging, the conversations were often involving panels of 50-year-olds concerned about what is happening to their bodies and their attractiveness and their brain. And I, ha- I had some of those concerns, but my my concern was also about older adults because we don't have really good numbers how many old people we have uh, who are HIV. We really don't. But we know the number is growing. We know that over 50%, I think, are over 55 years old now. I think that's the most current statistic. And we're rapidly going to have a lot more people. And, I, and I, I'm already there, like I'm 75. And I'm mm-hmm. seeing the world a bit differently than I did as a 55-year-old because you have right. a whole bundle of concerns that 55-year-olds don't even talk about. So that translates for me to uh, advocacy around not so much aging adults, but old adults or elderly adults, you know, people in their 70s. Um, are their needs being uh, taken care of? Are their voices being listened to? Do they need HIV supports? Or are there other things going in their life that are far more important? I think these are, these are questions that I don't have all the answers to. Uh, but I do right. really want to be part of the discussions around being old with HIV, not just aging. Right. We've, I think the balance needs to change. 
I'm really, really glad talking about the International AIDS Conference that they now have, or they will have in Montreal uh, next month, a silver zone, which I think is the, a cute way of saying this is where older adults can congregate and network and feel accepted and loved. Absolutely. Uh, so I'll probably, if you, if anybody's coming to Montreal and wants to find me, there's a good chance I'll be hanging around the Silver Zone, Silver Zone. a lot of the time. So <laughs> me too. Oh yeah. It's great. Then, I mean, it's yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, they describe it as a place for older people living with HIV to re-engage with the HIV community uh, and follow the science on HIV and aging and to feel included and celebrated. And this is being hosted by the organization Realize, a national organization in Canada. So how important is it to you, uh, like for the older HIV community, to feel included and celebrated? I think it's, it, it's really important, James, particularly as the numbers are so large. And we are not mm -hmm. really hearing from um, many of my colleagues in that age group uh, very much. Now, we have some brilliant activists, I'm thinking of people like John McCullough and Ron Rosenis, who are still who are my age group and are really at the forefront of, of innovation in, in, in HIV. But we're not a large number. The fact that I you know, can't name more than five activists of that um, age group, in, in, in Ontario anyway, speaks volumes. And, and there are reasons for that. I mean, there are some very obvious reasons why if you're getting old and your mobility is not quite the same or you can't hear so well, you can't see so well, you can't drive maybe, you're not maybe as involved or wanting to be involved as you were in your younger days. So um, right. we're, we're, we're somewhat invisible mm -hmm. and that could be because we don't need HIV services. I think that that could be one of the reasons, but it may not be. And I, I, I want to hear from that sector to try to figure out what our needs are because I'm just getting the feeling that they're not being met. Right. Yeah, fair enough. So what advice would you give to young activists starting out in the HIV sector? That's a good question too, James. It's such a long time since I was a young AIDS activist, I can hardly remember. <laughs> I, I, I really think before, you know, jump into boards and that, start getting involved at the local community, local AIDS organization. Well, that's what I did anyway. And it was really, really good for me because I, all of a sudden I was connected. I was starting going to conferences, reporting on conferences and just feeling passionate about the issues. Right. So I think sort of jumping in and listening to people who seem to know what they're doing and listening, <laughs> listening to, um, and reading a lot too. I learned an awful lot from reading. Read right. Pause Magazine was the first thing I think I ever picked up, and I read it from cover to cover for quite a, uh, a few issues. Um, you know, I th I, the other thing I would say is that young people and older people would really benefit, I think, from connecting. I would love to have this conversation to sort of share strategizing, to share experience, and to hear what young people's issues are, and to make sure that those people are equipped to have those concerns uh, listened to and met. Yeah. There's a real market we haven't really tapped yet for intergenerational learning. Oh, agree. And I'd love to be part of that. I'd, yeah, I really absolutely. would. I really would. Yeah. yeah. You'd be good at yeah. that too, James. 
Oh, thanks, yeah. Bob. Yeah, no, that would be a fantastic opportunity. Because you've been around a long time too, right? So, so you have a ton <laughs> yeah. of experience. Don't just retire and you know use use that experience in a way that passes it to the next generation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. My sort of my final question for you, Bob, before I go into my this or that questions, which I usually end off the podcast with. What's the future hold, Bob? What's the future hold for Bob Leahy? Mm, I wish I knew. I have never been one to plan very well, to be honest. I've always been a, okay, let's see what happens uh, kind of guy. So asking me questions like that is challenging. But I will say that I think I probably at some point I will have to say goodbye to HIV work and concentrate on my health because right. at some point comorbidities and how to deal with them become a, a real going concern i think as you get older i'm seeing this i have a, a partner with my age group too so you know i think i would like to concentrate on on getting old but doing it well and and enjoying mm-hmm. life and um choosing things that that you like and try and discard the things you don't like that's always been my strategy for the last 20 years or trying to trying to do trying to keep focus on things you like doing is really important that is very important well thank you for that all right bob so now i'm going to ask you five ridiculous questions really um rapid fire questions this or that questions which will take us out of podcast here are you prepared i am prepared all right okay so glass half full or glass half empty Glass half full, definitely. All right. Be embarrassed or be afraid? Be embarrassed. Mm. I, w- I think the probably answer would be, um, I hate being embarrassed. <laughs> so I'm going to say <laughs> be afraid. Okay. Um, visual learner or verbal learner? Visual learner. Visual. Logic or emotion? Logic, I think. And pause time or rewind time? Ooh, good one. Rewind. (laughs) Rewind. Okay. Well, thank you, Bob Leahy, so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, James. I enjoyed it. And thank you for asking me. I appreciate the chance to have an older voice uh, on the the airwaves. (laughs) My pleasure. That's it for us this month. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time on Podcast. And if you have any comments or questions or ideas for new episodes, send me an email at podcastforyou at gmail.com. That's the number four and the letter U. Podcast is produced by The Positive Effect, which is brought to you by ReachNexus at the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions. The Positive Effect is a facts-based lived experience movement powered by people living with HIV and can be visited online at positiveeffect.com. Technical production is provided by David Grine of the Acme Podcasting Company in Toronto.